Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Good afternoon to you. My name is Adam Andrews. As Wendy mentioned, I'm the director of the Center for Literary Education, stationed in Northeast Washington State, which means it was a long day on Wednesday getting down here. Uh, I was actually working on a brand new seminar, which I thought I would, I had it in my mind to try on you, and it was how to make fire alarm noises. But I think given Wendy's announcement, I'll skip that and go right on into literary analysis. If you guys would like to hear my collection of fire alarm noises, maybe we could go outside the building later and I'll show them to you. What I'd like to do before we get into the topic at hand, which is asking the right questions, teaching literature with Socratic discussion, is give you a detail or two about my own history so that you don't spend the first half hour of our time together wondering who I am and whether you should pay attention to a word I have to say. And I'd like to start by saying that I'm a historian by training and inclination. I went to college at Hillsdale, studied history, went to graduate school at the University of Washington in Seattle, studied history. I'm writing my PhD dissertation on early American religion, specifically the Great Awakening in American Presbyterianism in the 1740s. That's all you want to know about my dissertation, I assure you. The thing about a dissertation is you're required to become the absolute master of a subject that no one else has studied. Now, what's the point of that? I do all of this work and learn this degree, and nobody wants to hear about it because no one else has even investigated it anywhere near to the degree that I have. Anyway, I'm working on my dissertation, and someday I'm going to finish that monumental work of American intellectual history and be known as Dr. Adam Andrews, at which point I'll require all of you to refer to me by that illustrious title. <laughs> Chances are equally good, however, that I will die of old age before it's finished because they don't pay you to do that kind of work, and I have a lot of other things going on. In the last few years, I've been the headmaster of a small classical Christian school in northeast Washington state, where I, it was kind of a one-room schoolhouse arrangement. I was the administrator and headmaster and the teacher for all grades, all subjects. And so I became a, a high school Latin teacher and a logic teacher and a theology teacher and a history teacher and a math teacher and a PE teacher and a music teacher and a philosophy teacher and an art teacher and even a literature teacher. It's a lot of hats to wear, I realize, but I also know better than to complain to the likes of you <laughs> because I sit today among my true heroes, among men and women who have decided to do all of that and more with no support with no money, with nothing but guts and conviction, who have decided to stand up against an entire culture that says, give us your children, we will educate your children for you. We may let you have them back with permission every once in a while. You've decided to stand up against that entire culture and say, no, I will do it myself, with my own money, on my own time, by dint of my own efforts. Thank you very much. It's a very noble decision that you've made, a noble calling that you've entered into, and it's my desire and hope to be uh, of assistance to you in that calling. You are truly my heroes. Uh, one of the reasons I know this so well, what it is that you are doing, is because my wife is doing it too. And she is back in northeast Washington right now, eyeball deep in the trenches of homeschooling. And we began this process of homeschooling very early in our career. We went to Hillsdale College together, and we were married four days after graduation. And so she took her final exams in English literature and planned a wedding all sort of in the same month. We had the wedding four days after graduation, and she got hives over 100% of her body that day. That's another story I'll tell you some other time. But anyway, soon after that, this stork began paying insistent, repeated visits to our house until within a very few years, there were six little Andrewses running around the place uh, looking for trouble to get into. And... My wife, being a bookworm and a lit major and a, and a convinced homeschooler by that time, began eagerly looking around for great literature that we could be involved in with our kids, great children's literature. And so she began assembling what I believe to be the greatest private library of children's books ever assembled by one woman in one place. Now, I haven't seen yours, but I sure like ours. <laughs> Along the way, however, she also was looking for curriculum materials to help her guide the kids through these books. And here we encountered some frustration because it seemed to us as we looked around the literature curriculum landscape that it was dominated by 
what we like to call the workbook approach to literature. And I see some heads nodding as if you understand what I mean by the workbook approach, but I want to give you just a, a few specific details so that the comments I make about the Socratic method, about Socratic discussion, will be more understandable. The workbook approach to literature really has three components. Uh, the first component is it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a workbook that has the title of the work you're studying on the front of it. And inside, there are three things. Number one, there is the reading comprehension question. The reading comprehension question occurs in groups of 10 or 12 at the end of every chapter. And the student is required to fill in the blanks of a sentence that has to do with the details of the chapter. Or maybe answer a question in good grammatical form with a capital letter at the beginning and a period at the end and a complete sentence with subject and predicate. Who wielded the axe in chapter 7 of the story? The student is required to write, Johnny wielded the axe in chapter 7 of the story, period. Moves on to question 2, answers 10 or 12 questions like that and then goes on to read chapter 2, the reading comprehension question. At the end of chapter 2, however, there are 10 or 12 more questions he's required to answer, by the end of which workbook he has answered 50 or 60 or 100 reading comprehension questions. Element 1 of the workbook approach. Element 2 is the vocabulary list. And, of course, you know what the vocabulary list is. This is a group of words that occur in chapter 1 that Johnny may or may not have encountered before in his reading, and he's required to do three things with each word. I think you know what they are. Number one, he's required to spell each word correctly on a piece of paper. Number two, he's required to define it from a dictionary. And number three, he's required to use it in a sentence. Exactly right. Of course, the vocabulary list. Element three of the workbook approach to literature is the optional enrichment project. Optional enrichment project. This is where, if Johnny is reading a story about Daniel Boone, for example, he goes to the garage and makes a log cabin out of quarter-inch dowel rods. <laughs> the optional enrichment project. Now, I don't mean, well, I kind of do mean to make fun of the workbook approach, but, but I just want to make the point before we get started that I have used all three of these elements of the workbook approach in my literature teaching, and I encourage them all in their place. Very, uh, very recently, there was a log cabin made of quarter-inch dowel rods in my own garage, and I'm not kidding. So it's not that I am against the workbook approach, but as Missy, with her lit degree and her love of reading and her love of the great themes of literature and the great ideas that literature represents, as she began to look for curricular materials, she became convinced that there must be more to literary analysis than vocab words and hot glue. There's got to be something else to it, something else that we can do with our kids when we read them a story besides ask them, who wielded the axe in chapter 7 and did you like it? And if you didn't like it, why not? And to leave our kids there on that precipice, I didn't like it, but I don't know why not, because I'm the one without an education. <laughs> You're supposed to tell me why I didn't like it. I'm not supposed to tell you. And what happens is we tend to leave our kids there because we didn't get a literary education when it was our turn, so we don't know what questions to ask. We have no idea what to ask after, did you like it? In fact, it's only a very vague notion that we have in our own heads whether we liked it or not. <laughs> it's kind of a dawning at the back of the skull. I don't think I liked it very much. <laughs> well, we don't know why because we don't know the questions to ask ourselves. And the truth is, this gets right down to what the heart of education is to begin with. Education is not knowing the answers to life's questions. It's being familiar with the questions. It's confronting yourself with the questions or being confronted with the questions and facing not the answers to the questions, but the fact that you don't know the answers. That's where education happens. And so there's something missing in the workbook approach. And it's that thing that I want to talk about today, that... that kernel of education that we can get at. But the problem is that the, the elements of the workbook approach won't get us there. And this is the heart of what I want to start with. The reason it won't get us there is because there's no discussion involved in the workbook approach. There's no give and take between teacher and student where the real issues of life are on the table, where the student is faced with the questions of life posed to him by a teacher who knows what they are and a teacher who knows that those questions come from the work of literature under study, and that the work of literature can be used to present 
eternal questions to the student that he has no choice but to face and answer because class isn't over for another 40 minutes. And there he sits, and the time has come to confront the questions. So what I'd like to do is give you some tips and some pointers on how to have those sorts of discussions of literature with your students. And here I always encounter trouble because I get the look on the face from audience members that say, I'm a math science person. You don't understand. I'm an engineer. We don't think like other people. And we certainly don't think like literary analysts. And I understand that. I understand that very well. And if we were doing Franz Kafka today, I would be right with you. If we were doing Tolstoy's War and Peace, I would say, I know what you mean. You've got a long way to go. And literary analysis, if we start with Kafka and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Shakespeare and even Mark Twain and Harper Lee, is a tall order. There's a lot going on in those stories. There's not nearly quite so much going on in this one. This one here. This one right here. What happened? I think my computer turned off. There's not nearly so much going on, I was saying, in a story written for children, in a Caldecott-winning literature piece of literature written for eight-year-olds, where the main focus is not the text, the main focus is the charcoal drawings. The Biggest Bear by Lind Ward, Caldecott winner in 1953, classic work of American literature, and most importantly of all, accessible to kids and grown-ups alike. The secret of our approach to literature is this. The very same elements that make up Shakespeare's Hamlet or Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird are present in Lynn Ward's The Biggest Bear or Russell Hoban's A Bargain for Francis, which is an I-can-read book, which means none of the words have more than three syllables. The things that make a great work of literature are the same, regardless of its intended audience, regardless of the age or reading level of its intended audience. And so, what we can do, if you had a choice, if two books were equally useful for presenting and understanding the elements of a story and the elements of great literature, and one of them was by Franz Kafka, and one of them was by Lynn Ward, which one would you choose? Which one would you choose for your eight-year-old? Which one would you choose for your high school student? This one. Every literature class I teach, I begin with A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban, which is just the greatest work of American literature in the last 50 years. It just happens to have been written for eight-year-olds. And they roll their eyes at me at the beginning and say, oh, Mr. Andrews, we are not going to read a kid's book. By the time we're done, they know what I know, which is that we have interacted with literature. We have analyzed it. We have interpreted it. We have participated in a great conversation about ideas. It's been going on in human history since the dawn of civilization. And we've just added a line to it. And those kids have become one step closer to educated adults as a result of Russell Hoban and his work. So what I'd like to do today as we get into this story is I want to show you how to have a discussion about a work of literature that's not based on what I've been doing to you so far, which is lecture, lecture, lecture. And you've been doing to me so far, take notes, take notes, take notes. That's the last thing we need to do in literature. What we need to do is have a give-and-take discussion where ideas are on the table. So I want to quit talking about that and start doing it. Let's have a little object lesson in how to conduct a Socratic discussion about a work of literature. The Biggest Bear by Lind Ward. Johnny Orchard lived on the farm farthest up the valley and closest to the woods. On the hill behind the barn, Johnny's grandfather had planted a few apple trees. These were the only apple trees in the valley, and they were known as Orchard's Orchard. Whenever Johnny went down the road to the store for a piece of maple sugar or something, he always felt humiliated. The other barns in the valley usually had bearskin nailed up to dry, but never Johnny's barn. Every fall for three years, Mr. McLean had come in with a bear. And one evening, Mr. Pennell had just stepped out to the edge of his nearest field and shot three in a row as they came heading for the tall timber. 
It is true that Johnny's grandfather had met a bear once when he was on the way back from picking apples. But he had gone in one direction while the bear had gone in another. When Johnny asked him why, his grandfather had said, Better a bear in the orchard than an orchard in the bear. (laughs) It was very humiliating. Johnny said, If I ever see a bear, I'll shoot him so fast he won't know what hit him. And we'll have the biggest bear skin in the whole valley. After he had gone quite a way into the woods one day, he came to a place where there was a big stump and something seemed to be moving in the bushes behind it. It was a bear, all right. He seemed hungry, so Johnny gave him a piece of maple sugar. On the way home, the bear ate all the maple sugar Johnny had in his pocket. Johnny's mother and father were a little surprised to see that Johnny had really brought a bear back with him. Johnny's grandfather said, I suppose you know what a bear likes to eat. The bear liked the milk that was meant for the calves. He liked the mash meant for the chickens. He liked the apples in the orchard. He liked pancakes on Sunday morning. And most especially, he liked the maple sugar Johnny brought him from the store. There was hardly anything he didn't like. And Johnny's mother got pretty upset when he started looking for things on the kitchen shelves. In the fall, Mr. McCarroll got pretty upset when the bear spent a night in his cornfield. In the winter, he had a wonderful time with the bacons and hams in the Pennell's smokehouse. It was bad enough that he emptied all the sap buckets when the McLeans were tapping their maple trees in the spring. But it was worse later when he got in the McLean shed and drank up most of their maple syrup. He was always eating, it seemed, and he grew pretty fast and got pretty big. Finally, Mr. McLean started talking to Mr. Pennell. They both went to see Mr. McCarroll. Then they all came to see Johnny and his father. What they had to say about Johnny's bear was plenty. He was a trial and a tribulation to the whole valley. After the neighbors had left, Johnny's father explained to Johnny that the bear would have to go back to the woods. So the next morning, Johnny started out. They walked for miles due west on an old lumber road way past Baldwin's Hill to an old clearing that was overgrown with raspberries. Johnny explained to the bear that the time had come for him to go and live in the woods like other bears. He gave the bear a last hug and started the long walk home. While he was doing the chores the next morning, Johnny saw that the bear hadn't stayed in the woods very long. So Johnny started out again, due east this time, to the Blueberry Bluff, way past Watson's Hill. And when Johnny left him, the bear was eating blueberries very happily. But two days later, he was back again. This time, Johnny took him due south and got a boat and rowed two miles out in the lake and left him on Gull's Island, which is a pretty big island. But the next morning, there he was, not even very wet. Johnny and his father talked it over, and they decided there was only one thing to do. Johnny said he would do it. They didn't really have to go very far, but Johnny somehow kept on walking. They went north this time. There were no roads here, and it was a part of the woods where Johnny had never been before. At last, they stopped. Johnny seemed to have a hard time getting a bullet in the gun. While he was working with it, the bear seemed to get a whiff of something. Without warning, he took off through the woods, 
Johnny went with him. They went through the woods so fast that Johnny lost his gun, but he held on to the rope. They seemed to be heading for a sort of little log house. They went through the doorway pretty fast, and something came down with a bang, and they were prisoners. When Johnny looked around, he saw the bear was happily chewing on a big lump of maple sugar that had been put in the trap for bait. Pretty soon some men came. They were a little surprised to see Johnny in there. They explained to Johnny that they were getting animals for the zoo in the city. They were delighted with Johnny's bear. He was much bigger than they had ever hoped for. He'll have a fine place to live and all he wants to eat, the men told Johnny. And you can come see him whenever you want to. And I'll always bring him maple sugar, said Johnny. The end. Ah, the classics, don't you think? Now, I think this is a classic of Western literature. And I think that for some very particular reasons. And what I'd like to do is see if we can't come to a conclusion about that subject via a Socratic discussion. And I can't get into all of the details of how you set up a literature class in the short time that we have together, but I'd just like to ask you a few questions related to the structural parts of that story and have you respond and think about them, and let's have a little bit of discussion and see if we can't get down in the end to some sort of understanding of what this story is really about and what this story is really about. Because here's the point of reading literature and discussing literature. It's to understand the universal themes, the universal themes that are dealt with in a work of literature. Does anybody know what universal themes are? What do I mean by that phrase? Anybody? What's a universal theme? Okay, good enough. It's a great answer. A theme or an idea that is present in the thinking and in the writing and in the artistic expression of thinking men and women down through the ages, down to the beginning of human history. The kind of thing that makes the Iliad have something in common with Huckleberry Finn. Two books written about completely different times and places, about completely different people, completely different issues, but there are things that tie them together. Those are universal themes. My contention is that children's stories deal with universal themes as well and that a good discussion of a children's story can get a young student contemplating a universal theme in exactly the same way that a high-level discussion of Shakespeare's Hamlet can do with a high school kid. Give me some examples of universal themes. Love. Love. Thank you very much. The great universal theme of all. Love. Can you give me some others? Death. death. Absolutely. Love and death. Both. Yes. Others? Theology. Yeah, who is God? The theme of who is God? There's some other. Persistence. Betrayal. Loyalty. Those are universal themes. Bitterness. Anybody ever read the Iliad? Classic about Achilles? It's a great, great story about bitterness and about the effects of bitterness on the, the bitter person and his people. It's a theme throughout all. How about coming of age? That's a great theme of literature too. The fact that Growing up from a boy to a man or from a girl to a woman is fraught with danger, <laughs> is fraught with hardship, is fraught with conflict. It's a difficult thing to come of age. Notice that when we talk about universal themes, we're not really giving morals. We're not talking about morals. The universal theme is, doesn't tell you to act in a certain way necessarily. It's not a lesson. Coming of age isn't a lesson. Coming of age is just an idea. You know what? Life's going to have that in it. There you go. And the author deals with the coming-of-age theme, and he says, this is what I think about it. This is an example of it. What do you know? Coming-of-age. There it is. He rolls it around on his tongue. And you, the reader, participate. And you say, ah, yes. That brings me to mind my own coming-of-age story. What do you know? I'm a person, too. Just like the character in this story. And a connection is formed between the reader and the author. And the reader is drawn into that eternal conversation about ideas. That's the point of a universal theme, and that's the goal of a discussion of literature, to get your students, no matter what their age, to say, ah, yes, this story is about that theme. I get it. 
at some primary level, at some intermediate level, at some advanced level. I get it. So how do we get to the theme of this story? Well, I can give you a fill-in-the-blank sentence in a workbook. What is the theme of The Biggest Bear? And you might get the answer right and you might not. And if you got it right, you wouldn't know why. And if you got it wrong, you wouldn't know why because you really wouldn't know your own mind about it. So let's ask some preliminary questions. Among what kinds of people is this story set? Farmers. Who else has a contribution on that score? Set among farmers? Among country folk. Very good. So that's what they do for a living. They're farmers, country folk. What what else can you say about them? Hunters. How do you know that? They're shooting things. Left and right, they're shooting things. They've always got a gun. It's always loaded and ready. Very good. Hunters. What kind of people are they? Okay, it's set very, very precisely in the orchard family who are not hunters, right? Good. Let me talk about the other people in the neighborhood in just a minute. What sorts of people are they? They're hunters and farmers, yes, but what kind of characteristics do they have? What kind of personalities? How would you describe them as a group? Proud. Proud. What else? Rugged. Self-sufficient. Proud, rugged, self-sufficient. They're flannel shirt wearing, shave every three or four days, driving truck kind of people. I live in the northeast Washington, which is a very rural area. These are my people. <laughs> I know these folks. In my, <laughs> in my neighborhood, uh, no, one, uh, no one claims to have any guns. When you ask somebody, you got any guns? They always say, nah, I don't really have any guns. I'm not really a gun person. All I've got is the, uh, just the handgun for home protection and the shotgun behind the seat of the van and the .30-06 in the attic. And they just go on and on and on. The average number of guns in a house in my neighborhood is 20. I'm a, recent, <laughs> I'm a recent transplant from Seattle, and we don't know anything about that in Seattle. Yes, self-reliant people, rug, rough and tumble, rugged. Would you say manly men? There's a certain kind of masculinity about the folks in this neighborhood, the McLeans and the McCarrolls and the Pennells, right? What about the, the Orchard family? What do we know about them compared to that sort of masculine world? You were said something a minute ago. Good, good. And how, what else do we know besides the bearskin issue? What else do we know about his family? Go ahead. Yes, his grandfather, who wasn't a hunter, he was an orchardist. You know, he planted things and picked them instead of shooting things. And when the, he saw the bear, he ran. And what was Johnny's reaction? He was humiliated. He was humiliated. So we have an idea of the setting of the story. And we know what kind of people... The story is set among. Let me ask you another question. At what time in the main character or the protagonist's life does this story happen? At what, how old would you say he is? Yeah, maybe 12, 10, 12. Is it important, do you think, that the story is set at this particular time in his life? What if he were 30? <laughs> You're laughing. Why are you laughing? He could have been 30. Right. A 30-year-old knows not to take home a baby bear. When we first moved out to my rural county in, in, uh, in northeast Washington, uh, you, don't, you have to do your own garbage. There's no garbage service. I live 20 miles from town. It's the only thing I hate about living in the country is you've got to do your own garbage. It just drives me crazy. And so you get, you get behind, and the garbage starts piling up, and then the bears start coming, and they eat the garbage. And they spread it from hither to yon. It's spread all over the county. And so you have to go out every morning and clean it all back up. And finally, a few summers ago, seven or eight years ago, I got to the dump. I cleaned it all up after the bear had been there about four four days in a row. And I took it to the dump, and the garbage truck out behind my house was empty. Of course, then I was on the bear's daily route. And he came by that night and didn't see his beloved garbage pile. And so he started sniffing around the house. And he smelled the kitchen. And he climbed in the kitchen window and had his way with the garbage under the kitchen sink. He went in the kitchen, stuck his nose under the sink, and said, oh, there it is, and strewed garbage all over my house. And I got up in the morning, and I saw garbage all over the house. I saw a bare handprint on the window. And I said, bear! Everybody upstairs! And the kids and wife ran up the stairs. I'm in my underwear, and I got a gun. I look like Elmer Fudd. I'm going around the house like this, looking for the bear. Then I realized, what am I going to do? I can't shoot this gun. I'm from Seattle. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I ran up the stairs and got under the bed with my wife. I, we didn't know what to do next. It turns out that the bear got out 
the same window that he came in by a complete luck. Evidently, that doesn't happen. Usually they get lost in the house and they freak out and start tearing the place apart. He actually got out the window and was gone by the time we woke up. So this, if you were 30 years old or a grown-up, this story, would you would never do this. You would say, kids, run! <laughs> Good, so it's important, in other words, that the story happened at a particular time in the little boy's life. Let me ask you this other question. What does the protagonist, Johnny in this case, what does he think is the most important thing in life? Now think before you answer. If you had to fill in the blank, Johnny thinks blank is the most important thing in life. Shooting a bear. Fitting in. Honor. Courage. Maple sugar candy. Okay, those are all great answers. Why are they not the same? We all read the same story. It's what do we think, but all of our answers come from reading the same story, right? And all of those answers actually have some basis in the story. Nobody was just actually pulling that answer out of thin air. We think it's about honor and courage because we saw that in the story somewhere. We think it's about shooting the bear because we saw that in the story somewhere, didn't we? I hope not. I hope we're not doing that because we'd be committing something of an error of literary analysis, which is to put yourself in the place of the character and foist your own experience off on the character. The first goal of literary analysis is to understand what the author meant to say. But the question is, are, is there evidence in the story for all those answers to what the character wants? Does Johnny want to shoot a bear? What's his first words? If I ever see a bear, I'll shoot him so fast he won't know what hit him and we'll have the biggest bear skin in the whole valley. Of course he wants to shoot a bear. What else did he say? To fit in. How do we know that from the text? How do we know that Johnny wants to fit in? Their bar never had a bear skin. He's humiliated by the whole thing. He, of course he wants to fit in. The reason, of course, is someone can want more than one thing, can't they? He's got all kinds of wants and needs, doesn't he? Let's impose some sort of an order on those wants and ask this question, which is always a, a fruitful question to ask. Does the main character's goal, or does the thing he wants, change as the story goes along? Do we see Johnny developing at all? And not really in general, but in this specific way. Would he fill in the blank in that sentence differently at different points in the story? Let me put that in real specific terms. At the beginning of the story, how would Johnny answer the question? I want to shoot a bear. I want to kill a bear. And why? Why does he want to kill a bear? To fit in with the neighborhood. Does he want to just fit in or does he want something specific? Fit in in what kind of way? He wants to be the best at what? Shooting bears. Anything larger? Having a bear skin. The most courageous. The most flannel shirt wearing, gun toting, pickup truck driving, manly man in the neighborhood. Right? He wants to out McCarroll the McCarrolls and out Pennell the Pennells. And he wants the orchard name to be the scrawniest, half shavenest, tobacco smellingest name in the whole neighborhood. There's an idea of masculinity that he's got in his head, isn't there? And that's what he wants. And that's what he's going to shoot that bear for. Does that change as it goes along? Who's he concerned about in the beginning of the story? So who's the number one guy on his list of taking care of? If you're humiliated, if humiliation is your feeling, who are you thinking about? You really are pretty much thinking about you, aren't you? Nobody's really humiliated for somebody else. It's more that I was standing next to you when that happened, and so I'm humiliated for me. <laughs> Wouldn't you say? You can really tell that Johnny is like all boys are, like all of us men are in our boyish moments, concerned with himself and his own reputation. Does that change as we go along? When does it change? And by what degree? And how can you tell? Okay, the bear starts becoming a nuisance in town, doesn't he? And so Johnny realizes that the bear's going to have to, what? Go back to the woods, right? And so Johnny exerts himself to great, goes to great lengths to try and get the bear back to the woods. Who's he concerned about now? He's concerned about, wait a minute. What's his first attitude towards the bear? I'm going to kill him. Not anymore. Now he wants to save him from the wrath of the neighborhood. Right? So the big bear has become his friend. 
And so his concern has moved off of himself ever so incrementally, ever so slightly, onto another person, hasn't it? What would you call that? What sort of development is that? Is that good? It's maturity, sort of. <laughs> Concern for your pets, yeah, that's one step towards maturity. Does it change more? Where? Yes, exactly right. That poignant page there where Johnny's standing there holding the shotgun or the, the, the rifle. And it says, Johnny said, they realized there was only one thing left to do. Johnny said he would do it. Who's this concerned for now? Who's he concerned for now? The McCarrolls and the Pennells and the McLeans. He's concerned for the very people that were humiliating him at the beginning of the story. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to take care of his neighbors, up to and including what? Shooting his friend, right? His good friend who's stuck by him through thick and thin and wouldn't go stay in the blueberry patch on Watson's Hill and wouldn't go stay on Gulls Island because they wanted to be with Johnny. Johnny is willing to do something to his, great, his own great hurt in order to take care of the people around him. Does he understand something differently? Is his worldview changed between the beginning of the story and the end? What does he think is the most important thing in life at the end of the story? How would he fill in that blank? The most important thing is the greater good. good. Yeah, how else would you say that? The welfare of my neighbor. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. How would Johnny fill in this blank? This is how a man behaves. Blank. At the beginning of the story. A man does macho things. How would he answer that question at the end of the story? A man does the hard thing. Yeah. He takes responsibility, of course. Of course. A man lays down his life for his friends. That's what masculinity really is. So Johnny obviously comes to that conclusion. And the reason we know that, by the way, we're not just spinning a tail on this book. We're actually locking down our answers to these questions to specific places in the text. When Johnny says, I'll do it, I will do it. I will take the gun and I will take the bear and I will take care of my neighborhood. That's right. That happens there right there in the story. But the way we've gotten to that realization is asked a series of questions of the main character. Simple questions that you could ask of any main character, but that yield a good discussion about eternal themes. What's the eternal theme we're talking about here? Growing up, coming of age, obviously. Coming of age is a difficult thing. You've got to face difficulties. What other themes have been touched on? Loyalty, laying down your life for your friends. What is the, it's the nature of love. What is love? Is love getting what you want? Getting things that gratify your need for acceptance? Getting things that gratify your desires in some way? Oh, love is dying so that your people can live in some way. Love is laying down your own prerogative and your own life for the sake of somebody else. That's what it really is. In the real world, even. Right? So this is a story about those things. Did I force that off on Lind Ward? It's in there, isn't it? That's why we're drawn to it. That's why we go, oh, wow, great story. I like that story. I approve of that story. Someone can say, do you like, do you like the biggest bear? Yes, I like it. Why? Well, it made me feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> yeah, I did, but I know why. It's because it's a story about love and what love really is. It's a story about masculinity and what masculinity really is in the real world. And my heart and soul approve. And we get there to that understanding of a theme based on a series of questions, simple questions that we can ask our students. So let me just, just remind you what those couple questions are that we used. We, we talked about what kinds of people the story is set among. And we established the fact that there was that tension between Johnny's people and the rest of the people in the neighborhood. You can always ask that question. What kinds of people form the setting of this story? And how does it relate to the protagonist's goal? And then we ask specifically about that protagonist's goal. What does he want? What does he think is the most important thing in life? And we ask if that 
if he would fill in the blank differently at different points in the story. And why do you think that is? What has happened to change him? Sometimes the protagonist won't change his mind at all. What is the most important thing in the world to Huckleberry Finn? Anybody know? Freedom. Liberty. Huckleberry Finn wants to do what he wants to do and follow his own guts. And it never wavers from the beginning of the story to the end. Everything around him changes like crazy, but he remains constant. Sometimes the protagonist changes and sometimes he doesn't. Always on purpose. The author's always doing it on purpose in order to communicate a theme. The theme of Huckleberry Finn is there's something the matter with this American society we live in because it stifles freedom. It stifles independence. It stifles the ability to be who you are and do what you want. And so his main character needs to be constant and never change, never fill in that blank any differently. So one of the great uh, results that you can have of a good Socratic discussion is coming to terms with the universal themes of the author. As I close, I don't know how much time I have left, but I just want to... I just want to um, do a little bit of an object lesson. What if this had been a lecture on the significance of the biggest bear or a workbook on the biggest bear? If you'd gotten down to the end and the blank, it had said, fill in the blank, the theme of the biggest bear is blank, period. Could you have filled it in? Of course you could have. And that would have been that. And you would have either gotten the right answer or a wrong answer. But there wouldn't have been the discussion that we have had about it. Partially because there wouldn't necessarily have been a teacher up in the front of the room that's already read The Biggest Bear and thought about these things in advance. And so has a pretty good idea which direction he might want you to tend in your answers. He's not read, you, you wouldn't have necessarily a teacher who is prepared to say, this book is about eternal universal themes and I want you to confront them today. And I want you to go away thinking, love means laying down your life for your friends. That's what it means. Remember that. The workbook can't do that for you. A discussion can do that for you. The other great thing about a Socratic discussion is it forms a relationship between the teacher and the student. There's a relationship forming even between me and the lot of you as we go through talking about the biggest bear. Now, it's a tenuous one because we're strangers and there's a lot of you and only one of me. But if I were your mother and you were one of four children sitting around the kitchen table and we were talking about universal themes, the relationship that already exists between us because of the family connection would be deeper. And you would come to the end of your career and say, Mom... Everything I learned about love and laying down your life for your friends, I learned from you. Thank you for reading all that literature to me. My kids have the same reaction to my wife. One of her favorite themes is life comes out of death. Life comes out of death, life comes out of death, life comes out of death. She says it all the time. She works it into every book where it shows up, and we talk about it all the time. And the kids from our neighborhood come over and participate in literature classes at our house, and they all know about life comes out of death. We had one graduate from homeschool last weekend. And she was standing up in front of the little church where we had a little ceremony. And her dad was up there giving his little speech about what a wonderful girl she is. And he was thanking all the people that had been instrumental in her life. And he thanked my wife. And, and it was a teary kind of a thing, you know, and it was all sweet and wonderful. And she was standing there beaming because she's graduating from high school. And she leans over to my wife and she mouths the words, Life comes out of death. <laughs> and then she said, Thank you. <laughs> The relationship we form when we have discussions about the literature, those can be eternal things too. And I just want to encourage you today to participate in those discussions. That's where education happens. That's where education can happen in literature. That's the glory and the importance of literature and the great ideas that it presents, those wonderful discussions between parent and child. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Also, if you're interested in this approach to literature, my booth is number 802 in the exhibit hall. And we have a full-blown program that discusses this kind, of, uh, this kind of literary analysis and can go into more depth in th- about the things that I've been talking about. The other thing is I'll be speaking twice tomorrow if you want to come hear me. We're going to not do The Biggest Bear again. We're going to do A Bargain for Francis, which is even better than The Biggest Bear. And we'll do Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's great poem, uh, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Even though I'm, I'm skeptical, skeptical how that's going to go over south of the Mason-Dixon line. We'll see. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I, I use the term in a very loose sense. Um, I use the term Socratic... I'm sorry, the question was, can you define Socratic discussion? Uh, we take that from the Greek philosopher Socrates, 
who is famous for his style of teaching, which focused on asking his students questions rather than lecturing them and telling them answers. So we use it in only that narrow sense. It has deeper philosophical senses that we don't get into. But basically, where the teacher uh, teaches by asking questions rather than by listing answers. We use it that way. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's always helpful to know where you're going, but it, sometimes it doesn't go there. And the reason is that you're dealing with individuals who hopefully, hopefully, God willing, are developing the ability to think for themselves along the way, which is the real what we're really after. And so the teacher needs to be available for, we're not talking about love today. What we're talking about is machismo, and off they go. And so the teacher always kind of walks a fine line between saying, I really don't think it's about machismo, guys. I think we really need to focus, and be, being willing to say, I think they might be going to get it wrong today, but they're having the discussion. They're backing up their opinions with evidence from the text, and the habits of mind they're developing are worth it. So you have to kind of walk a line. But I think I would always be in favor of being prepared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having gotten up in front of a room unprepared before, it's always better to be prepared. Yes, sir. When we started talking about themes, you mentioned morals and then kind of stopped. Where, where does that fit? Because I guess it's one thing in my mind to have a discussion about I'm not so sure, especially depending on the child's age, that discussing, allowing a discussion of morals in some cases, which are fairly black and white, at least in my sure. um, there shouldn't be a opportunity to learn how to discuss morals, so to speak. Mm. Mm. You know, this is the way it is. Yes. Very good, very good point. The question was, you stopped talking about morals. You just talked about themes, and you said a theme is not a moral, and then morals were kind of pushed aside, and there's some concern that we, don't, that we, we ignore morals, and it wouldn't be good to ignore giving our kids moral instruction, which I could not agree with more. And the point that I want to make when we're analyzing literature is, if the author has a moral, then we want to be real clear about what that moral is and teach it as a moral. The author's making a moral judgment on this subject. If the author doesn't have a moral, and here's the important point, then the stage at which we moralize about it comes after we understand the author on his own terms. So in order to analyze literature correctly, we understand what the author is saying, whether or not he has a moral. And then, after we understand him, then we can say, okay, we understand exactly what he was trying to say. Do we agree with that in the Andrews house? Kids, say, no, we don't. See what I mean? But first of all, you've got to understand the author on his own terms. Ernest Hemingway is a great example. One of the great writers of the 20th century. Just a fabulous writer, a fabulous thinker, a fabulous handler of ideas. Nothing to tell me in the moral department. They just disagree with almost everything. So what I want to do is read Hemingway with my older kids and say, here is a 20th century modernist atheist view of the world. Perfectly displayed in great classic literature. Understand it. This is what you get when you deny the existence of God. You get nothing. This, and, and this is nothing beautifully portrayed. Understand it. Now, do we agree with Ernest Hemingway, kids? No, we don't. We start with the opposite assumption, and we get something when we go into art. But first of all, we understand the author on his terms. That's what I was after. Thank you for the clarification. Very good. Yes, ma'am. Any particular adjustments need to be made for... Um Well, you know, I think the kind of questions, and by the way, our, our program um, gives you all the questions that you need to have this kind of discussion in generic form so they can apply to any, any book. And we sort of grade them. And we say, here's the early grade dis discussion questions that are very simple and aimed at, at remembering what happens in the story and at some very basic thematic concepts. And in, in the average story, you can, you can go at it as a, as a young kid or as an older kid. And maybe a young kid, when he was reading The Biggest Bear, wouldn't come up with love means self-sacrifice. You know, maybe he'd come up with kindness to animals or something like that. And you could just go with that and say, you're right, it's good to be kind. Better to be kind, well, maybe not to bears, but <laughs> better to be kind to things and give them maple sugar than to shoot them. I don't know. But yeah, you can adjust it based on the level of your class. But the important thing is really not and I hesitate to say this, but the content of the discussion is not primarily important. It's the fact that you're having a discussion and saying, think about this. What do you think? Have an opinion based in the text that you can actually bring to the table. That's really the important habit of mind that we're after. Because there's going to be plenty of content, 
plenty soon enough. Yes, sir. How do you know if you discover the author is true? Good question. Very good question. This is the reason that there is literary analysis, of course. This is the reason there's a literature department at every university in America. And it is because most of the authors are dead. (laughs) And we can't ask them. And so we are left to the only other source we have for their intention, which is the text they've written. And that's why the habits of mind I'm talking about are so important, of saying, this is what I think, and this is the evidence from the text that I use to make my point. And if anybody else has better evidence from the text that the point is something different, let's hear it. And let's have a conversation about it. And in the end, the truth is, in life, there are way more questions than there are answers. And we're all going to disagree about the important things. And the important thing isn't necessarily that we have the right answer, but that we have we can develop a relationship with a person we disagree with so as to have a conversation and dialogue and bring them around to the right way of thinking, if that's what it is. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So really, the habit of mind we're after of having a well-considered, well-developed opinion based in a text that both of us have access to is what we're after in literary analysis. And the moral judgments that we talked about a minute ago. Obviously, when our kids are young, we need to be able to give them those as well. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of so-called great literature, but do you think just because it's considered great literature that something that you should read to your children all the time? You know what I mean? How everybody says, as long as it's considered classical literature, is that always appropriate? It's a great, great question. Yes. The question is, just because it's called classical literature, classic literature, does that mean we have to read it all the time? Or does that mean it's even appropriate, necessarily? And obviously, we're on a, we're on a fine line there, too. We're between two extremes. On the one hand... If, the, if human civilization is still treasuring it a thousand years after it was written, it's probably got something to say that's permanent because there ain't no law that says you have to keep reading the Iliad. But we still do. There's something in it that continues to draw readers hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years afterwards. So we should that detail should get our attention. And we should say, why is that? Why is it that we still read about Achilles, who has nothing in common with us? Maybe it's because he does have something in common with us. Maybe it's because when we nurse bitterness in our own hearts, it destroys our relationships too. And it's good to be reminded of that. On the other hand, Odysseus sleeps with a variety of women and isn't punished for it. And we need to have something to say about that. And maybe what we say is, I don't want you reading the Odyssey yet. It's not time because I don't want you to be exposed to that yet. And in the final analysis, that's our call as parents which is why I'm in the homeschool movement encouraging homeschoolers because my firm conviction is that that is your responsibility and your privilege to say, in the Andrews house, we don't read that until we're 15 or whatever it is. If you're going to have a discussion about it, I think the parent ought to at least be aware of what's in it. Yeah, I didn't let Ian, my oldest son, who's now 16, read Huckleberry Finn until he was about 13 years old. He was ready for it in terms of reading level way before that, but... My determination was that the content was, it wasn't appropriate for him yet. But nobody, I mean, I'm the one that stands before God all by myself for that decision, and nobody could have told me what, how to do it. So, God bless you. Thank you for your attention. I will be back tomorrow. Thank you.